I'm concerned, I wanted to take this moment of time to express unto you my appreciation for the invitation. I'm thankful to the elders that have invited me and put enough trust in me to present the truth of God's word, because I know that's what this church stands for. It's what you hear preached, it's what the elders are striving to lead you in that particular realm of, of truth. And I'm just grateful to be able to participate and to have a part in trying to accomplish the goals that have been set out with these series of lessons on fellowship. You've been very hospitable. I do not know a lot of you. I don't think I knew much about you other than by reputation, but to know you individually and to get acquainted as much as we can in a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday arrangement, I've enjoyed every moment to be with you. Some of you had me in your home, the elders the very first day, took me out to eat and enjoyed being with all of, of them, and it shows hospitality among the leaders here, but you all show that. You're, today, I know you're excellent cooks. There wasn't anything I didn't like, and there was probably more that I couldn't eat because we couldn't get there, and we, I couldn't hold it all anyway. But I've enjoyed very much everything. The singing has been outstanding, that you have been singing out, and it has been uplifting. I appreciate the songs that have been led, the men who have led it with their uh, talents, and I'm just edified, and I'm just grateful, and I just can't appreciate any more what you've shown to me in love and hospitality. The Raiders have been so gracious to open up their homes to me when they already have some people living with them right now, and I appreciate Nathan Lee and going to the basement so I could go to the penthouse, and I don't think I'd like to leave there. That's better than the place I live in, just that little room. You put a refrigerator in there, and you, I, I won't come out for a while. But there was one, Penny, I think is grateful that I'm packed up and ready to go. You know, when you're supposed to have common sense, you know, you don't need to be staying more than you need to. You appreciate the moment. Everybody likes that. But it's time for company to leave sometime. And I knew that today when taking out the bags for, for my wife, Penny had one in her mouth, and she was helping me put that in the car. Now, you believe that, don't you? But she was very happy to see somebody getting out of there, and she's going to get in there, and I hope she can do that soon. But even Penny was nice to us, and she was a very sweet little dog. But I, I enjoyed every moment of our time together, and I hope it's been beneficial to you, and hope that we can meet again one day. When we think about what we're looking at this evening about the guidelines in fellowship, we have set some of those guidelines already. And we've talked about darkness and light, that we're not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We are light, and therefore we're to bring forth fruit of light in our lives. We talked about when you go beyond the doctrine of Christ, you do not have the Father and the Son. I want to stay within the doctrine of Christ, don't you? That's within the boundaries of fellowship. We talked about this morning about church discipline, where sometimes we have to withdraw our company. That's approving that social aspect of our relationship. We have to withdraw that because people persist in sin and to wake them up because we want them to back to a place of righteousness. And we saw Romans 16, 17, saw how it's been perverted that there is the doctrine that is causing the disunity and the division that's contrary to the doctrine which we can learn and we do. And we want to have unity based upon the true doctrine and we want to avoid the division, but we're going to stand with truth. This afternoon, I would like to look within those boundaries and see about some guidelines that I think are helpful when we are striving to uphold the pattern of fellowship. And that is in the realm of forbearance. In our scripture reading, we read that we're to walk according to the, to the glories of the gospel, and our lives will be befitting to that calling and that gospel call. And he says that we are to be meek and lowly. That's humility. And with forbearance, Showing forbearance, long-suffering with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Please note that the context of that is keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And here's where we're dealing with the faith. Not somebody's confidence level in Romans 14, but the faith. That is the faith of the gospel. There's only one faith, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's where we can have unity because it's just one of those things. We build our lives upon that. And we realize that we cannot tolerate the false doctrine. But what do we do when we are confronted with that doctrine that's false? What's the first thing that we do? Do we draw our lines? Got a fellowship with God and I can't have anything to do with you? The Bible speaks about forbearance that is there. I think if you're going to be a good servant of the Lord, you're going to have to have forbearance with people, bearing long with them. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 Apostle Paul describes the servant of the Lord. Don't you want to be a servant of the Lord? Well, you're not going to strive, but be gentle towards all, apt to teach. You're going to know your teaching. And you have the ability to communicate that, especially to people who are practicing false doctrine. But notice forbearing. In meanness, correcting them that oppose themselves. If peradventure God may give them repentance unto the knowledge of the truth, that they may recover themselves from the snares of the from the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him unto his will. I mean, when the devil has you, your head. I don't think you can get any deeper than when the devil has you and captive of his will. That's where you are. And God is going to work to give you a heart of repentance. How does he do that? Direct operation of the Holy Spirit? No, he works through his servant, doesn't he? That servant, apt to teach, but with forbearance, with humility, with forbearance, is going to correct them who are really opposing themselves. And through that servant, who is not about him, it's not about her. It's not about, I've won the battle today on the polemic platform. No. It wasn't about me. They saw the truth. And they changed according to the truth. A servant with his forbearance and meekness. Keeping himself in control with humility. Can bring a soul around to the truth. And take themselves out of the snare of the devil. They see it. Titus, the third chapter in verse 10, we see, I think, this threefold area of forbearance in this work, in this particular example of a factious person. A factious man, after a first and second admonition, refuse. What are we seeing there? We just say, well, he's factious and therefore I'm going to refuse him. He's got to be out of fellowship with God because he didn't have the right teaching. Even a man that is factious, that word factious denotes he's a center of attention. It's not necessarily God, it's what I think about it. He's a center of attention. He wants everybody to rotate around him instead of around God and around truth. He's taken his way and he likes that. But even that man, what happens? He is admonished by the servant of God. Titus, you admonish him. How many times I need to do that? Just once will be enough, will it? After second admonition, you refuse him. You turn from him. And I think that is very instructive. And what happens when it's finished in verse 10, of when that has happened, Verse 11 says, knowing that such a one is perverted and sinneth, being self-condemned. And you say, well, you condemned him. No, he's self-condemned. Truth has been presented. Forbearance has been there. A meek servant, Titus, gives him one chance, one admonition. And he's going to speak from him. Where do you admonish people from? Not your opinions, but 2 Timothy 3.16 is the scripture. It's proper for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The servant of God is apt to teach that and brings that to him and warns him and admonishes him. 
Not once. You got twice here. And if he refuses it then, he's standing self-condemned. He's self-condemned with God. And you turn away from him. That's when the lines have been set. But look what happened within those boundaries where a factious man needed admonition. What happens? There's a period of time in which we are upholding the boundaries of fellowship, are going to be dealing with our brethren out of love and love for their souls, and we will be forbearing with them because we'll rebuke them with the scriptures. We'll give them time for reflection, a time for which they can seriously consider that. We'll come back with another admonition. And you know what happens? The reaction. And what's happening, all the honesty is surfacing or the lack of it. And I really mean that, honesty. Here is the truth of God, and it's presented in a humble, meek way. I want you to see the truth. Do you see that? I, you'll see it yet. Well, here it is. Here's another passage to confirm that. It's, truth does not contradict itself. You work hard at that. There comes a time when a person is given the truth of God in its clarity. And they don't accept it. They're not intellectually honest. They're not being honest before God. They're self-condemned. And I want us to have confidence in the word of God. And to realize that this is going to expose. This will be involved in exposing that false teacher. Here's a statement made by Ed Harrell defending Homer Haley. Well, he's not a false teacher because this is what a false teacher is. And Ed Harrell says they're ignorant. You can be delusional, the idea of your teaching error, or you can be deceiving. And when you look up the passages that he gave, I agree with this. But listen to the context of those passages. It wasn't that I'm just ignorant. There were mockers saying the Lord's not going to come back again. He hasn't come back all this time. But they willfully forget that there was a world out here that was destroyed by a flood. It wasn't just ignorance. It was willfully forgetting the Jews in Romans, the 10th chapter, they indeed have a great zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. They're ignorant. But what they do is that they are rejecting the gospel of Christ, and they're seeking to establish their own standard of righteousness and will not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Yes, they're ignorant of the truth, but as it's been presented they have great zeal, but it's a willful ignorance. Delusional. Second, 1 Timothy 4, 2, there's deception that's taking place. And that's going to happen in these last times, falling away from the faith. Through the hypocrisy of men that speak lies. Well, how can they speak lies? What's the context? They're branded in their own conscience as with a hot iron. They're teaching doctrines forbidding to marry, to eat meats, but they are hardened. Yes, they are deceptive. They're being delusional and, and they're, being, uh, they're, they're really being delusional to themselves. But, they're, they have, but it is a hardened. It's the, it's the conscience that's been seared. It's the Gentiles in Romans, the first chapter. They have every opportunity to know God. Indeed, they were without excuse to know God. But they're not going to glorify him as God. And we notice in verse 21, because that knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasonings. And their senseless heart is darkened. They have the opportunity to see and they refuse to see professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. They're professing some reality, they're fools. They're delusional. But it's because they've hardened their heart. They've hardened their heart. 
In 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, we'll find that here the false teacher is described. And this false teacher is involved in rejecting the authority of God. He's deceptive. But it's because of a covetous heart in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. And in covetous, verse 3, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. So it's just not deceiving and people with a false doctrine. It's out of a covetous spirit. And when you realize that here is, well, I'm just not uh, ignorant of this. I've, I've, I'm just not, I'm, I've kind of got a hold of a, a false teaching here and, and it's, it's deceptive. And I, I didn't know it was the false doctrine that it was. No, these people are willingly ignorant. These people have hardened their heart. They're covetous in their teaching. And I believe the true teacher is not honestly mistaken about God's clear instructions. I'm going to accept that. After a while, it's what is being exposed. Now, do you understand why the lack of clarity was involved in how we're going to fellowship men who preach a contradictory doctrine on divorce remarriage? It's not clear. And when you're faced with clear instruction, and you are going to remain ignorant, willfully so, you realize that here I have, I've been uh, in a delusional state of what I'm saying. I want to get back to the truth. But you're doing that because I have a hardened heart. That you're not going to change. And the covetous spirit may work in some to get the crowd around them. That person is not honest. And that's what indeed a, a false teacher does. But the issue in our times, but well, it wasn't real clear. Now, I believe Matthew 19 is, first, is, is real clear. I, I experienced this in Lithuania. Had a lady that lived in Lithuania. Her husband's over here in England. And he goes over there in England and stays, and she's just tired of it. And she came to me one day and said, can I put away my husband? Because he's over there in England all the time. And like preachers do, we, I take the Bible, but uh, I gave her the Lithuanian Bible. <laughs> and I turned over to Matthew 19, and she read it. I didn't say a word. And she shut it up and said, okay, I know. I said, whoa, what do you know? See, that's usually when I have to do a lot of teaching. She said, I know. <laughs> I can't put him away. He hadn't committed fornication. He just stays away too long. And she read it pretty well. I realized we need to bring the Lithuanian Bible over here. Because everybody can understand it perfectly well. It says something about us. A lot of times maybe we're trying to justify somebody else. And we get cloudy. But the teaching of God is clear. And what forbearance does, I believe, it's going to allow a person's honesty to come to the forefront to change. Or they'll be self-condemned because of that truth. Let's see how this works. There was a man named Apollos in Acts the 18th chapter. In verses 25 through 26. He was mighty in the scriptures. In the Old Testament scriptures. He had learned the truth about Christ. It came to him through learning, hearing from others. And he was there in Ephesus. And he was preaching. Great orator. He'd been instructing the way of the Lord. We see in verse 25. And being fervent in spirit, spake and talked accurately the things concerning Jesus. Knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took, unto, they took him unto them. And expounded unto them the way of God more accurately. Now when we think about this example in the New Testament. And we've been talking this week about receive one another and not receive one another. Did you know that Greek word is here in this text? They took this man unto them. They received him. 
And here was a process now taking place. There's going to be some teaching being done. There's going to be a time for reflection. There's going to be reaction. And he was teaching accurately the way of the Lord as far as the baptism of John is concerned. But see, that baptism was not the one baptism we read in Ephesians 4. Because the baptism in the name of the Lord is in place now. John was teaching until the Christ came. And that baptism was of repentance unto remission of sins. And he said, well, why would, that, why would that be an issue? It was an issue with Paul. Because he comes down to Ephesus. He finds some disciples of John in Ephesus. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Because the Holy Spirit's going to be laid on by the apostles' hands when they're baptized. But they didn't know the Holy Spirit was given. And they were baptized into the name of the Lord. Well, Paul, I've already been baptized. Why is it important to you I be baptized again? Because this is not the right baptism that people are under. John's baptism had its place. He spoke accurately regarding that. But the time factor occurred and now Jesus had received the exalted name by which we could be saved. And people could be baptized into the name of Jesus. You know, Jesus received his name when he was eight days old. But he didn't receive the name of salvation to save people. His name meant that. But he was given a name when he was resurrected from the dead. Philippians 2. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. Yea, the death of the cross, but God highly exalted him, exalted him, and gave him a name which is above every name. That name by which we could be saved, wherein men must be saved. And that was to be preached today, Apollos. And he spoke accurately what he knew, but he needed to be corrected and learn something more accurately. And up steps Priscilla and Aquila. Second John 9 says, if he doesn't bring the doctrine of Christ, you don't, have, you don't receive him. Well, they took him unto them. And they taught him more accurately. Now it was time for truth to work on Apollos. What's he going to do with it? He's been... Counseled of where he's missed it. Now there's time for reflection. That truth is going to work upon him. But we see from other accounts, he became a faithful servant of God. He changed. He changed. Wonder if he did. Wonder if he did. What if he had heard that that day and said, I, I'm going to keep on preaching? the baptism of John. He could not blame the way they came to him. And he was not going to reject the truth because the servant of the Lord didn't act in the right manner. Oh, they took his side. He had no complaint about that. But I'll tell you, if he had not changed, would he be a false teacher? Teaching a doctrine? Would he be a factious man now? Wanting to preach his brand of Christianity? Having two baptisms, pick the one you want. And Paul's over there saying, no, there's only one. And even those that have been baptized into John's baptism in a time when that was not the baptism that God wanted the pe people to be baptized in. He'd have been a false teacher. But he wasn't labeled that. And he said, well, I tell you, and it's how people do sometimes. If it's a matter of, of teaching that will affect men's souls. You know, they're, they're teaching something out here that's different. But I don't call them a false teacher unless it's, a, it's affecting their souls. Does baptism affect men's souls? Can you go to heaven with the wrong baptism? It is a matter of salvation. Salvation. 
Paul recognized that when he was teaching them the truth about the one baptism. I'm just saying, what happens? Paulus is a great example. I think he went around with that teaching of God. Priscilla and Aquila walked within the guidelines of fellowship before he proved himself to be unworthy of that. Forbearance, teaching, reflection, then the reaction. Very briefly, we spoke about the weak in faith. Romans 14, 1 through 3. Here was a matter that was indifferent with God. But you remember in 13 through 15 that Paul made it clear to even the weak brethren that he was persuaded in the Lord. He was persuading the Lord that all meats are clean. He knew that they were, and the teaching of, of truth of God was very much showing that. He didn't hide it from them, as we talked about. Fast forward. One of the weak brother, though his practice could continue, if it's violating his conscience, one of he just kept on teaching, kept on judging, kept on teaching people that indeed these meats are unclean, contradicting the truth of God. What will we do with that brother? Paul's given some admonition in this chapter. Forbearance, I don't know how long that is, but if people continue in the route that they're going, and the idea that, well, you know this is indifferent with God, the brother in Christ is not going to put a stumbling block in front of you, but you're going to keep teaching and judging people? Then they're stepping outside the balance of unity, aren't they? They become a factious man. We admonish. There's time for truth to work on their heart. And there's a reaction. And then we know who's in fellowship with God or not. It helps us in, within those guidelines. In the churches of Asia, the seven churches are four of them that had good and evil in them. They had some things to correct. Had some things to change. And I won't look at all, but I'll take two of them tonight. The church in Ephesus. I know, he said, I know thy works in verse 2. Thy toil and patience. Thou canst not bear evil men. And distry them that call themselves apostles. And they are not and disfind them false. And thou hast patience and did bear for my name's sake. And hast not grown weary. Did they test the spirits as we talked about in 1 John 4? Were they test the spirits in the light of the truth of God? It came from the apostles. They were doing that. And you know what? It found them false. They went and said, well, I don't know if they're false or not. They found them false. Because that clear teaching would expose that. But he says, I've got something against you. There's something that is lacking that you need to correct. I have this against you, thou didst leave thy first love. Remember, therefore, whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come and remove the candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Did he give him an opportunity to repent? Does God do that? Yes, he does. And there'll be a time if they did not repent, he would take that candlestick, that barrier of light. You're no longer children of light, but you're going to continue that way. He would take that out of his place. You're not shining the light of my glory. But before that happened, that shows you they're not my people. There was forbearance. And there was some correction that needed to be made. I could see a people here that were so busy and dealing with false teaching. See a people that are involved in, in, and realize this person is a false apostle. And they're toiling in that area. They can be so caught up in the controversy they forgot why they're doing it. It wasn't about winning some battles and we're going to exalt the name of Christ. They failed to realize it ought to be done out of the love of the Lord. And that was just a facade because they left their first love of why they served God in the first place. You've got to correct that. Remember what you've fallen. Repent. That's forbearance. In a church, 
that had some good things going about it as well, but also some things that needed to be changed. The other one we read in chapter 2, I think is very instructive, is the church of Thyatira. And he comes to them and says, I know thy works and thy love and faith. They hadn't left their first love. He loves their love. He knows their faith and the ministry and patience. And they're growing in their works. The last of thy works are, are more than the first. But I have this against thee. Thou sufferest the woman Jezebel who calleth herself a prophetess. And she teacheth and seduceth my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I, have, I gave her time that she should repent. Forbearance. And she, willing to, and, and she willeth not to repent of her fornication. Behold, I cast her into a bed and then to commit adultery with her and great tribulation, except they repent of her works. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he that searcheth the reins and hearts and will give unto each one of you according to your works. She had deceptive teaching. But she was leading people astray. What does God do? He gives her time to repent. And says, church, you need to stand up and do not allow her to do that. But not all of them were doing that. Not all of them were guilty of that. And he says in verse 24, to the rest there in Thyatira, as many as have not this teaching, who know not the deep things of Satan that are wont to say, I cast upon you none other burden. Nevertheless, that which you have, hold fast till I come. They had the teaching. In Revelation, the second chapter, in the church at Pergamum, You'll read in verse 14, I have a few things against thee because thou hast some that hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Same thing, so thou also some that hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here was false teaching that was being done by Jezebel, but there were some that just held the teaching, just believed it. And both of them were wrong. It was wrong to hold to that teaching. It's wrong for her to be teaching. And they, in her doctrine, she needs to be corrected. She needs to repent. But she didn't. And all of a sudden, this forbearance is ended with God. And I think that's the way we ought to be involved with churches. Good and evil, meaning bad. Maybe happening in church that God realizes, I know there's some that are not doing that. Church of Sardis, there was, there was some that were worthy to walk in white with the Lord. But what we're seeing here is that here's the guidelines. You don't just mark them off at the beginning. There's a period of forbearance where they get to truth. They're admonished, have time to reflect upon that. And then there is to be the reaction that we had. So let's take this and make some application in our lives. Of our times. I'm speaking to audience, and there's some young people here. Times have changed where people are indeed moving from place to place. People are not staying in their hometown like they used to. They go off and they're moving to different places and they're going to all of a sudden be coming into different churches. That have been established for a long time. Have been practicing certain things. A long time. All of a sudden, they're there. And so they're going to be moving around. Mass media, Facebook, things that we can, young people, Snapchat, whatever you're doing now, which is uh, crazy. But you could get things out and information out there, and Facebook, they all have their place. But you're communicating real quickly with other people. And sometimes fellowship is involved with, what about the fact that you come into a church and a, the preacher there, you see on Facebook, he has a friend, and you know that friend is not teaching the truth of the gospel. And you're here in a church with the preacher, the friend of a preacher who doesn't teach the truth. 
just, just get fuzzy for us? These guidelines get fuzzy? What can we do about that? Preacher's not teaching it. But I know he's a friend. I see him on Facebook. They're, they're friends. And I know he's a close friend of that preacher. That preacher's not teaching the truth. We're going to say, well, you're a friend of the preacher that teaches truth, and therefore I can't have fellowship with you. What can we do? What can we do to be in saving souls without saying, I give up, and there's no way we're going to ever figure this fellowship out? Why don't we try our threefold test in forbearance? Let's uh, talk to the preacher, our preacher, not the guy over here he's a friend with. Let's talk to him and ask him. You know, I've, I noticed you're a friend to him, and I'm just new in this congregation. I want to ask you something. Do you believe his teaching? That might be a good starting point. You're not talking about hearsay, and when that preacher finds out you've been talking about this and his doctrine, you're going to realize, I, I came to this person. I want to know, do you believe the teaching? Revelation 2.14, do you hold to that teaching? That doesn't mean the answer you get is going to be involved. Well, I just have to mark you off with everybody else. There'll be a time for forbearance when we do that. Then secondly, well, no. I, I don't necessarily believe that. Do you, do you teach the doctrine? Because that happens in 2 John 9 through 11. That's going to affect fellowship, as far as I'm concerned. And so you're trying to find out with the person that you're immediately in fellowship with in a local church. You're trying to find out where he stands. And to hear it from him. And to be involved in trying to, to work that out. And we say, well, how do I go about doing that? Well, I am the servant of the Lord. I'm going to have forbearance. And I'm going to teach what I think is the truth, and we can discuss it. But in the meantime, with that truth out there, there'll be a time for reflection. And all of a sudden, that truth is starting. And I don't want him to think for a moment as that truth starts working on that person, says, I'm just going to not listen to that because he's such a rude guy. The guy talked to me about that. Or she's so rude. She's so arrogant. How dare them not have respect for me? That's not going to be there because you're the Lord's servant. You have to teach. You have meekness. And with forbearance, you're letting the word of God work on them. So they're facing the truth. And after reflection, there will be a response. And it may be a little more clear to you, this matter of fellowship. Because you know, <coughs> when people don't teach the doctrine of Christ, that's going to affect some fellowship. And there will be issues that you have to follow up with that. But you're starting where you are. And maybe that preacher says, you know, that's the truth. Maybe I need to talk to my friend. And you might save two souls. Or you may hit a roadblock. And you know what? Fellowship may not be a problem with you because he'll probably avoid you. Sometimes that happens. But you're trying to save their souls. And if you're wrong, you'll find out you want to change your ways too. Honesty will demand that. You move away and you become a member in an established church. And they've been through divorce and remarriage issues. The elders in that congregation have made some, some decisions of what they've done. And you just came along. You just got your degree and you're coming into work and you've got a new job. And I said, where am I going to worship? And you find out that when the first case came up, he was a man that was a Christian. And he was deserted by an unbelieving wife. He divorced her. He married another. And you know what that church did? They withdrew from him. Why would they do that? Matthew 19, 9 gives us only one reason for divorce. And it wasn't desertion. Oh, but there's over here in 1 Corinthians 7. 
that might change that. But they stood with that truth from God. And he said, well, that was good to know, but we got a new problem. We just had a woman come to place membership with us. And she suffered a husband leaving her years ago for a cause only known to himself. She later became a Christian and she obtained a divorce. She's married a member of the church here. What will the church do now? And that's on the front burner. I know what they've done in the past. That's pretty good. But here's a situation where a lady wasn't a Christian, deserted by her husband. She is involved in marrying a member of, of the church. She came to divorce. She gets, becomes a Christian, marries a member of the church. Now, what are we going to do with that? And it was issues over Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, we read where, indeed, if an unbelieving husband or wife leaves, let them go. You're not under bondage in such cases. It's instructive that in this chapter, you'll find the word, the binding of the, of the law in marriage. You're bound to, to the time your mate dies. If you're bound to a mate, don't be loosed. There is that restriction of law that comes when we're joined together by God in marriage. But this passage uses the word bondage. And that is you're no longer going to be in, an in a situation where if he's leaving you because you're a Christian, how are you going to stay with him? You're going to have to go with him. You're going to have to turn from Christianity to him. And I know that's happening because Paul says, how do you know if you'll ever save him? Let him go. What is her heart like? I'm going to go with him because I'm going to save him. You're going to have to reject Christ. And he uses, you're not a bondservant of man, you're a bondservant of the Lord. Let him go. You're not going to compromise that. Even though I, I think you, I know you want to save him, let him go. You're not going to be in a slave relationship where you reject the Lord by going with him. It wasn't saying that the marriage bond had been dissolved and you can marry who you want. Is that the way this passage is going to be applied? Well, we see this has the preacher. And the preacher in this case has said, there could be no difference in the judgment among us. We're not going to have it, you do it your way, I'll do it my way. Church, we're going to be involved in finding the truth of God. And we're going to be all in agreement. I admired that. But here is what he believed. Passages are clear from Jesus. While a minister of the circumcision... Oh, it's clear. Matthew 19, 9, only one reason for divorce. And you put away a wife, it's not for the cause of fornication. Luke 5, Matthew 5, 32. You're going to make her an adulteress. Luke 16, 18. It's pretty clear on that. But this preacher said that was for the Jews. That was for the circumcision. Paul, 1 Corinthians 7 is dealing with the Gentile world. And the unbeliever departs the marriage, separates that, and the brother or sister is no longer in bondage. Therefore, the marriage covenant is broken, and the believing party is free to marry. So this second occasion will be, we're going to accept them both. And they're going to be in fellowship with us. And we're all going to be in agreement with that. And you just moved there. I said, well, who, who is this preacher? It's Alexander Campbell. And you want to go talk to him? 
Those steely blue eyes looking straight through you, you want to go talk to him? By the way, you're not going to sit down because he stands up when he studies in his office. You going to be ready for that combat? And he recorded that in Millennial Harbinger in 1834. Yes, it's true that brethren have dealt with the marriage divorce and marriage issue long before we've had problems with it, and we'll continue afterwards. But ladies and gentlemen, this generation of Alexander Campbell moved on. And I think when you read between the lines, he was understanding the idea of the fact that like, he'll never be married. I think he knew the Greek tenses there. But he looked at it as being, well, this is the Gentile world. And Paul says you're not under bondage. He looked at that as the marriage covenant. That context won't bear that out. I don't care who preaches it. I would hate to go talk to him because he knew Latin and Greek and Hebrew and I don't. But I got the truth of God and I wish we could sit down and study that. I'd like to hear his answers. But even that, he's going to give me time to reflect. I'm going to give him time to reflect. I'm going to let the truth of God work on him. And realize that the context makes it real clear of what's happening in 1 Corinthians 7. I don't care who the preacher is. You're a servant of the Lord. But we can be facing the doctrine. We can be involved in forbearing. And we teach the truth and we give time for reflection, honesty will come to the forefront. And either we're going to be honest with the truth, or we're not. And we see that this is happening all the time. So I would just say we're going to teach, and we're going to be involved in rebuking. We're going to give time for honesty to allow it to come to the surface, but you know what might happen when all that's done? is that what we're, we're trying to teach somebody, they'll reject it, and we'll just have to walk away. We've tried our best, but we know we can't fellowship that doctrine. And Paul tells the Corinthians that indeed heresies must occur so that those who are approved may be manifested. And that's sometimes what we have to do through this, this process. And when we are involved in dealing with doctrinal error. But there's time for forbearance before we have to break fellowship with people. What about Facebook? And we have friends all over the country, different religious backgrounds, and they hold false doctrines because you're a friend of someone that teaches error just because you, had a, you went to school with them. Because you like the same breed of dog or the breed of horses. You're friends with them because they're in the same hobbies you are. Does that mean that you're going to have to unfriend them? Because you can't have fellowship with false teachers? I think those are opportunities that when we find ourselves knowing that here's a friend. That indeed we need to be careful about. Well, I'm not going to mark them off, but I'm going to. Give them time, and we can talk about things. How would you know that you've been unfriended? You'll never know that unless you posted something, and it's not there anymore on their page. You might know it then. But you know what? They may call you. How come this has happened? I want to talk to you about this teaching that I hear that you're holding to. Might give you an opportunity to do that. But just because you're a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, and that friend, 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 friend is teaching false doctrine, what are you going to do about that? Well, you need to realize I'll deal with the error closest to me. I'll talk to the friend that I'm a friend with. Ask them about what they teach. And we're not going to be thrown off because you're a friend of a friend of a friend who's a false teacher. And so I just I can't make any sense of that. Don't let it frustrate you. It's been tried before. When the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection, how do they deal with the resurrection with Christ? They gave him a problem that was just too horrible and too difficult to solve. Now here is seven brothers. That first brother died and the other brother under the law was to be involved in, in taking that wife and, and 
bringing forth a son and the honor of that dead brother. I tell you, all of them had her. All of them died in the resurrection. Who was she belong to? Were they wanting to know truth or were they just trying to confuse things? It is so complicated, you can't figure it out. Jesus didn't fall for that, don't you? You deal with one at a time. Maybe the one that you're closest to. Or deal with the one who is the false teacher and ask them about that. But you can arise and be a servant of God. You can take these threefold steps and forbearance. You teach, rebuke if you have to. You give them time for reflection. You hear the response. And things will be opening up to you when that happens. And what you're doing when you go through that process, you'll be involved in stopping the leaven of error. You're not going to allow it to continue on. You're going to be one that you have studied this and you realize this is being erroneous and you're going to a friend because you love them, love their soul. You're involved in doing that. You're trying to save a soul, not condemn it. But I think the fellowship issue will come when you realize they're not being honest. And it will surface to the top when they're reflecting upon the truth of God. And either they will be honest or they will not and refuse to obey the truth. And that's when it may be that you'll have to just part your ways and not have fellowship with them and realize that heresies must come, but it's sometimes to be the positive side that those who are approved may be manifest. And I hope we'll do that as we walk through the guidelines of fellowship. This evening, if you're not a child of God, we want you to have fellowship with God and to have fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. And we enter into that agreement with God and we enter into that relationship that's very close to him. And we have our sins washed away by his blood and that takes place in baptism. And if you're studying and you're saying, I, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. You need to respond to the truth of the gospel. There's only one message. It's not saying the sinner's prayer. It's not saying I receive Jesus as my personal savior. But it's repenting of your sins and being baptized for the mission of your sins as they did in Acts 2.38. The Lord added them to the church such as we're being saved. And you begin with a local church that you're not baptized in a local church, but you want to associate with a local church. This would be a great one. Because I know what they're doing. They're strong in the apostles' doctrine. Where the declaration is given so you can walk in that light. And you can be a servant of the Lord. And dedicated to his truth. Striving to save souls that will hear you as you save yourself. Tonight we offer you that opportunity to become a Christian. Come as we stand and as we sing.